Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to not underestimate primary students' abilities to use technology, think metacognitively, and mentor their peers. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Susanna Evans, a primary teacher and teacher mentor at Hygiene Elementary in the St. Vrain Valley School District of Longmont, Colorado. this as we are all in the middle of a pandemic. COVID-19 has been very scary for everyone, and the uncertainty makes our jobs as educators even harder. We're all doing the best we can to cope, and for some teachers, that means taking time out of their worrying to do an interview with me. Susanna Evans piqued my interest when she messaged me on Twitter about the fact that her students were podcasting as part of a unit. She amazed me when I realized that her students were in the first grade. The world of primary teaching has always seemed so foreign, and when I was a substitute teacher, the only time I ever found myself weeping in a dark room after school was after a day spent in kindergarten. However, this interview has enlightened me to how similar learning can be from K to 12, and I know every educator can be inspired by what Susanna is doing in her classroom. I began, as I usually do, asking about her path to teaching. So my path to teaching was kind of a strange one, as I imagine a lot of teachers say. Um, Back in 2005, I was actually in the corporate retail world, totally, totally different life. I was a graphic designer for men's ties, which is strange. You don't really think about people that actually make men's ties, especially in Colorado, where nobody wears a tie doing a lot of travel, international, domestic, and the money was lovely. However, I was miserable after a while. I had recently had a baby and I just thought, you know, I'm really not contributing to the world in any significant way. It just doesn't matter whether Nordstrom buys these ties or not. That that just isn't making the world a better place. That sounds really cliche, but it was what was going through my head. And so I just walked away. The thing that uh, I find really unique about your teaching style and which I hope to talk to you about is twofold. One is I noticed from your blog that you do a lot to incorporate technology in your classroom, which is something that I think many teachers, especially at a higher like secondary level, don't really think about kindergartners and grade ones using technology, but clearly they can and they do. Yes. And I think underestimating that is, is really unfortunate when teachers do that. (laughs) And so could you maybe talk a little bit about what technology looks like in a K or one classroom? Sure. I want to say, first of all, that I'm very, very purposeful with it. I am not using technology as a just busy work or just screen time per se. Creating a a digital book on what you've learned about elephants in first grade is vastly different than playing Candy Crush. And so it can be an empowering tool that the students are so intuitive when it comes to learning technology. They learn considerably faster than we do about how to use something and can teach other students. And what they can produce 
themselves versus just responding to or just playing. You have to be very careful about lumping, I think, the whole technology medium into a into a negative space versus what's being done with the technology. So for example, in my room, a couple times a day, I've got independent work that I've put onto the Seesaw platform or a couple other platforms. I use our Nearpod and Kahoot and some other apps. Not too many. I'm, I'm pretty careful about using quality over quantity, but having them create a digital book, for example, like we just did on how to grow a plant allows me to work with some students in another part of the room while some students are collaborating together and then allows me to assess what they've mastered as far as knowledge of plant parts in the life cycle, share it with their families and connect home and school. And it's not just them sitting on an iPad playing a game. I will almost every day after the lesson that I have taught in person, of course, and worked with students to reteach or, or push them to go further. There is a practice or challenge activity online that they then complete on their own or perhaps with a group. And that again, allows me their families to see what we're doing in the classroom and allows me to give them feedback and assess their work and make them feel so much more empowered than if they're just responding and filling in a worksheet. And so most of your students, I'm assuming, have access to internets and computers to do that with their families after school? They can do it with their families, but what I'm seeing is there are so many digital portfolio apps out there now that they might not have an iPad at home, but their families are connected to my classroom via certain apps. And so in real time, when a student submits something and then I approve it for work, it is connect. they immediately get a notification on their phone, the, the family, and they're seeing what activity their student just completed in school in real time. I know that For some teachers, the thought of parents having those eyes into their classrooms Mm -hmm. can be really scary, but it Mm -hmm. sounds like you've really embraced that and see the positive in it. Could you maybe share your perspective of why you think or would encourage others to do so? Yes, I think that inviting families into the teaching and learning cycle is actually one of the keys to success. I think when they don't have access to the classroom, there tends to be more judgment, maybe a little more doubt and fear as to what's being taught. And I think when the connection is there, I have seen almost nothing but positives come from using the same kinds of language. I send families in the beginning of the year examples of what kind of feedback is best on these journals, digital journals that they're going to be connected with instead of, oh, you're so cute. Things like, wow, I noticed you used a lot of detail in that drawing or let's work on this at home when you get home today if somebody is struggling. And so what I've seen is almost all positive as far as connecting home and school and letting the family know why we're working on something, what the content is, and what's happening is those conversations that 
that used to happen when a child gets picked up. What did you do at school today? And the answer is nothing, right? Or what? how was school? Fine. Now the conversations are, I saw your math that you were working on today. It looks like you were working really hard or, oh my gosh, can you explain more about that plant book that you made today with your with your classmates? And that turn in conversation right there, I feel like is a win. And you've done a lot of work also in terms of what kind of feedback you're trying to give your students. Um, what has that journey been like for you? I am a big fan and have taken a, several cognitive coaching classes. And one of the game changers in my teaching has been an effective feedback examples and, and a rubric almost where we default to judgmental and personal feedback so often with students. And in, for an example, when you say, oh, I love how much color you put in your drawing. And that is adding, it's kind, but it's adding a measure of pleasing to what that student is working on and what continuously using feedback like that. I love the way you're sitting still right now. I love or it makes me so happy to see you working so hard. It becomes the relationship between you and your student that then they have to start that all over too with a new teacher. Then they think they're just doing it to please you. And I feel like you, of course, want to develop relationships with students, of course, especially in the primary world. It's so important. But those kinds of comments and conversations maybe are better left for the morning when people are coming in and you want to make sure that you that you notice them. Oh, I see you got a new haircut. You got new shoes. I love your dress today. And those are all lovely. And you are trying to establish relationships with these students. When it comes to work, though, or it's testing time or you're giving feedback on something they've produced, having more data driven feedback or observational feedback, or even metacognition, even in the younger grades, is so much more helpful for them as a learner. For example, I see you added a lot of detail to that story, or what could you have done differently in your math test that you think might have changed the outcome? Those kinds of conversations and questions, I think, allow students to separate their relationship with you versus their goals as a learner. And you reference brain science, even with your, your primaries, correct? Yes. All the time. I believe so strongly in not just utilizing the most current brain research in the classroom as a teacher, but also talking very transparently about that with my students. I show them images of, I, because of my master's in PE, and I, I really believe passionately in, in using movement frequently throughout the day and incorporating it in my classroom. So I will show them in the beginning of the year, the images of brains at rest after sitting for 20 minutes that literally are a different color than brains after you've moved for a while. And so we often use, there's a great school of thought about the zones of regulation, which I can send you a link on later, but we talk about the zones of regulation, like the blue zone, you're feeling sad, maybe, or sleepy, or just kind of 
down and the green zone is really where we try to talk about you're ready to learn. Your brain is like woken up and you're good to go and you feel self-regulated and yellow, which we live in a lot in first grade because it's kind of like puppy dog (laughs) excited brain and, and a little hyper. And we talk about how that's exactly where you should be at that age and that it's probably better for you to be more in the green zone if you're in a ready or a ready to learn space. And so we talk a lot about how movement helps us or a calming strategy. And I just feel that there shouldn't be a secret between the teacher and the students as to what is a best practice or why things work, why you remember things better sometimes and don't remember things and what techniques help us with our brain and the latest research. There's, of course, you have to use kid-friendly language, but there's no reason in the world not to share that information with them, in my opinion. So I, I don't know if you've seen the powerful teaching book by Patrice Baines, and she also has an online book club. And I am a big believer in her techniques. The powerful teaching concepts, which are based on four concepts, really, of retrieval, metacognition, space practice, and interleaving. And I highly recommend to any, to any teacher or anyone who, frankly, works with other people in a management capacity. Um, they are based on the, the most current brain research. And we, I have the icons on my board. That's actually all I have on my board. And I tap them all the time. And we talk about how right now we're doing retrieval or right now we're using metacognition because we're thinking about why we did well on this test and reflecting on how much we've grown as a learner. And, you know, right now kids will pop up and say, we're interleaving right now. If we're talking about math during a social studies lesson or, or, you know, we're combining content and, or they'll say, we're building background knowledge right now. I just, I love how they understand these concepts and they are perfectly able to utilize them in their own learning. It's so exciting to watch and they don't, they're not just sitting and getting, I think has been teaching in the past, certainly for me when I was growing up. It's so much more active. It's not as passive anymore. I love that idea that they're getting that metacognition awareness so early. I know. I know. It's really exciting for me to think about if I can do this with first graders, what will they be contributing in fifth grade or as an adult? (laughs) It's really exciting. What would be an example of a self-assessment done at the primary level? So actually in my math, for every test that we have, I created a self-assessment sheet where the students then, I will go through the test and mark correct and incorrect answers. And then they, the next day, get this self-assessment sheet. And I'm welcome, I'm happy to share that with you, where they have it made it really easy for even six six year olds to look you know problem number one on the test and problem number one on a self assessment sheet and check whether they got it right or wrong if they got it wrong, was it a simple mistake as they look at it? was it a count you know something like a counting error 
or was it a conceptual, like, I did not understand this question. And so they go through each problem on each test and, and do this self-assessment. And at the end, they calculate how many, if they had mistakes, how many simple mistakes they had, how many do not understand. They write a little blurb for me about why they think they did well, if they did really well, what their strengths were. If they didn't do well, they write about what kinds of mistakes they made and what are their goals around this? Why did they think that was happening? For example, were they rushing? And if they were rushing, what? how are they going to fix that next time? What are they going to be more aware of? And there's a space for a challenge problem. Often I have kids who do so well that they don't have any mistakes. And so at the bottom, they have to create a challenge problem for themselves and solve it. So that can be done even in first grade. And what I have found is that the self-awareness it creates is causing less mistakes. They, If they are a rusher in the beginning of the year, they often see, oh my gosh, I have four mistakes here that I could have avoided completely. And what I really need to do is slow down. And I'll see that same student, the next test, no mistakes. And if they had a conceptual understanding, did, do, did not understand things, we have a great one-on-one conversation about, well, hold on a sec. If you haven't understood this for two weeks, let's talk about why you didn't raise your hand, right? Or why didn't you get help from me prior to the test? Or why didn't we ask a peer, right? So it leads to those kinds of conversations, which are coaching in nature and metacognitive in nature. And those kinds of self-assessments can be done at any age. I have an almost identical self-assessment that I used with my like senior, my grade 12 students for a language class. And it probably, I imagine, looks the same, but just has smaller spaces in between the lines. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm happy to share a link with you. Um, I'd love that. What yeah. this self-assessment looks like. And we have it on writing too. We have a, a student-created rubric, you know, we went through as a class and decided, well, what's, what's the out, the goal here for this writing? Are we looking for, you know, capitalization and punctuation? Of course. Are we looking for an introduction statement? Are we looking for details and concluding statements and use of temporal words? And so after that checklist is actually posted at the top of their writing prompt, and I will have them peer, we have a review process in my room of self, peer, and then teacher. And so their job is to first go through themselves after they've finished writing and check it themselves. And then they get with a peer and they do a peer review. And then they finally come to me after. And moving through that process on their own is so empowering. They they give they learn to give feedback to each other. They live learn to give feedback and correct mistakes themselves instead of again, just I know I sound like a broken record, but instead of just waiting for a result from me. Do you do a lot of coaching at the beginning about how to be a good peer feedback giver? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, <laughs> we do. None of this is implemented by any means on day one. All, <laughs> all of this takes a lot of time and upfront modeling. And we talk about what good feedback sounds like, just like I try to give data-driven feedback versus not personal feedback or or judgmental feedback. I'm coaching them on what feedback, good feedback looks like for them as well. I see that you use temporal words, 
temporal words here, here, and here in your writing. That's data-driven feedback versus, oh my gosh, your handwriting is so pretty. <laughs> that, that is, those are two different kinds of feedback. And one is pushing someone to be a better writer and one is not. <laughs> so we talk about that even in first grade. And that, but if, again, these take these take more time at the primary level to institute, and they you might not be able to do them until the middle of the year. The self-assessments I often don't put in place for math until November, say. And I will often send a copy of it home after a math test and have them do it with their family first and write a little letter to the family saying why we do these, why we believe in this kind of self-assessment work. And then the family also knows what these are when they start seeing them come home later. And then we move toward doing them in, say, a small group with me and four students maybe after a math test. And then we get to, you know, so all these things are take longer in first grade, but by the end of first grade, they're totally capable of doing them independently and then think what could be happening in third or fourth grade. And prior to the test, you do student coaching review, not teacher-led review. Over the, say it's a two-week math unit, we will, I'll just, of course, be assessing as a teacher where the big struggles are say there's three concepts that I, I'm noticing a pattern or trend in where students are having some trouble. And so in the review, we usually have a review day before a test and give people an opportunity to work on things they're struggling with or they haven't mastered yet. And I will put up on the board maybe th- the three areas I've noticed as a teacher where people are struggling the most and invite students to come up and put their initials under which one they want to work on today before the test tomorrow and often put student experts in charge of those groups, which allows me to float among the whole room and check in on everybody or meet. Maybe I need to one-on-one conference with somebody who's really struggling and allowing those students to demonstrate their own mastery as we know you become more fluent in a subject when you teach it versus just listening. So it allows them to get some more practice as well. It allows them to feel empowered. Maybe they can explain it better than I can. Often kid language is, you know, kid to kid language is easier to understand than teacher to kid language. So I've also noticed that it's not always the same students who are experts at something. Somebody in, if to use a math example, somebody who might be an expert in algebraic thinking might not be the best person in terms of geometry and shapes. And so I am seeing a rotation of students who are the leaders. And that is also building efficacy in the whole room and giving people empowerment, maybe leadership roles that they haven't experienced before. And it's, just astounding the results that I see the next day. I ask them to assess and reflect on how the preparation in the review helped them prepare for the test. And they all say it helped more than just me getting up there and reviewing it, just me talking. I I just see so much more of an investment in their own learning. What is a unit or lesson that you are the most proud of? Well, I think this year, if I'm thinking more recently, we have a, and I think this is how you and I connected actually, was around financial literacy. We have a unit 
that is based on learning about goods and services. And it can be a little dry <laughs> for first graders. You know, it's a little bit lofty at, at that age, but it is important. And I really committed, I had been teaching it for two or three years. And this year I really committed to making this more in this unit more interactive and bringing in some more real life connections and community connections to it. And it became just one of the most favorite units of the year so far, which was, had not been the case in the past. We set up a store in the room where kids were able to determine prices. We had a lemonade stand in the room where they had to, again, determine prices, create posters for advertising. They had to make change for customers. And we also did a field trip down the street to a local market. They were so kind to let 60 first graders into their store. (laughs) The owner happens to be one of our school parents. So that helped. I'm not sure that would have happened otherwise, but we really just made so many community connections and created so many real life experiences for them in this unit. And then ultimately they ended up recording a podcast of their own on goods and services and, and just the mastery that was demonstrated around these concepts and the fun that they had in this unit, which in the past had been sort of one of the least favorite topics, I think has just made my year this year. And the podcasting process, uh, did you have access to podcasting equipment or was it just kind of a lo-fi way of doing it? Yes, very low tech because again, it's six-year-olds and I felt like I could make a podcast even without podcasting equipment. And that would be at least a way to introduce them to what podcasts sound like and how you could make them with just your phone, even literally using the voice memo feature on an iPad. The students came up with a script and there were three or four of them in in a group and they recorded this podcast and even linked in an interview with the store owner that we had visited. And then once I showed one group how to do this, I then had them go teach the rest of the class. So I ended up only doing it once and then they subsequently recorded it five more times with five different groups of kids. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty great. And I'm happy to send you that link to the podcast. And it's very short. I mean, it's maybe two or three minutes long, but it it sounds like a podcast. I mean, it really does sound like a, a first grade podcast. And it's pretty exciting. Again, thinking about what those students can then do in third grade or fifth grade or high school is what drives me every day. You can find the full example podcast at lessonimpossible.com, but I absolutely had to share this clip. And don't even get me started on prices and taxes. My last question that's my favorite to ask everybody is that I've given you unlimited school funds, full control, unlimited time. I've also purchased a home chef and someone to come clean and whatever you need at home. And 
please describe your ideal classroom or school? Honestly, I think I would be trying to tap into the background knowledge of what my students already have or what they are passionate about, what they're experts at. I'm, I'm having a flash in my mind of all of the students I've had in the past and and I can still think of what they were the most excited about in my classroom. Like there was always a dinosaur expert, right? There was always a person who was fascinated with construction. There was always a student who loved math, right? Or loved spelling. And I think tapping into what they love and wanted to help other students with, I think would be my ideal classroom. Just having a room full of students who were passionate about something and could teach others about it and having a ton of community involvement and creating a space where students were super driven and inspired to contribute to the world and problem solve uh, about things that you know, we don't even know is a problem yet, but could be, I think would be my ideal space. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing your expertise. If listeners wanted to find out more about what you're doing, do you have social media links? Yes. On Twitter, you can find me at, at Susanna Evans two, and that's S U Z A N N A H E V A N S two. So that's really the, I feel like Twitter has become the best place for educational best practices, in my opinion. So there you have it. Why digitally inviting parents into your classroom can be enriching. How self-reflections improve learning at any age. And why sometimes peers are better teachers than we can be. Susanna has been very generous with sharing the resources she mentioned, as well as an example of the world's most adorable podcast on financial literacy, which you can find in the show notes or at lessonimpossible.com. And if you like the podcast, please forward it to your friends and colleagues, as well as rating and reviewing it on iTunes. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.